Hey, what up? This is Shegs from ShegsUnstuffed.com, and this is part seven of our blog series through the seven letters of the book of Revelation. And this week's blog post is titled, That One Time When Jesus Was Super Impressed with a Church. To find out more about the blog, please visit our site at www.shegsandstuff.com. And on the website, through biblical teaching and encouragement, we remind you weekly that God not only loves you, but still likes you. So let's start off with some honesty here. Um, what does your ideal version of a church look like? Now, I know that question often has the response, well, there are no perfect churches. Yeah, sure, of course, I agree with that. But listen, if we are being honest, all of us, every single one of us, has subtle, sometimes not so subtle, unspoken expectations of what our churches should do and be and how certain things could be better, especially if we were in charge. So let's just, let's be honest with ourselves, right? What, what, what does your ideal church look like? Now, on your list may appear things like, you know, strong biblical teaching, Christ-centered worship, but, but really great worship is really what we're saying, excellent worship. You might say things like prayer or loving one another, loving our neighbor, justice, authenticity, missions, evangel, all of those, right? We might come up with this huge list of things we think describes the perfect church. But did you know? That there was actually once a church, or there was once a church that Jesus himself would have scored a perfect 10, like factoring in that there are no perfect churches, at least from his version. And the church I speak of here is actually the sixth church in our blog series through the seven letters of the book of Revelation, the church of Philadelphia. Now check out what Jesus thinks about this church, starting in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, and see how it fits with your idea of the perfect church. First, let's actually meet Jesus, because he says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write these words. He describes himself. He says, These are the words of him who is holy and true, and who holds the key of David, and what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. So, like I said, before we meet the church, let's chat briefly about the Jesus of the church. So to the folks in Philly, uh, Jesus introduces three qualities about himself that should instantly cause us to become alert, attentive, and frankly, to stand in awe. He says he's holy, he is true, and that he's got the keys to the door of every opportunity and every blessing that you will ever experience. He calls it the key of David. Now, while Jesus being holy and true sounds familiar to us, the key of David may be unfamiliar to some of you. So first off, let's just clarify that this is not a reference to a literal key that King David used to have. In fact, to appreciate what Jesus is referring to here, you probably need to jump back to Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22, where the Old Testament prophet, um, where the key of David is symbolic of great authority and power. So in that account, in Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22, God places the key to the house of David on the shoulders of a man named Eliakim, so that he could now access all the treasures and wealth of the king. So in those days, keys were often large, really big, and, and oftentimes carried on one's shoulder. So he literally got placed it on this guy's shoulder so he could access the king's authority and power. So when Jesus says that he holds the key of David, it should conjure up in our minds images of kingship and a kingdom and lordship because Jesus is saying here that all the gold and the silver and the precious stones on earth seen and unseen basically all come from his treasury. First Chronicles 29 11 tells us that every fortune 500 company and every mama and papa stop store belongs to him and that it's at his discretion that men are made great. 
Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, Even the hearts of kings and presidents or presidential hopefuls are in his hands and he directs them wherever he pleases. Get this, even our own salvation, our ability to believe by faith is a key that Jesus holds in his hands for no man can come to the Father unless Jesus draws them near by his Spirit according to John 14, 6. Now, here's what should really cause you and I to stand in awe and at attention. Because Jesus holds the key to every door of opportunity in your life, the key of David, because Jesus holds this key in his hands, think about this, no man and no angel and no evil scheming spirit will ever be able to stand in the way of what God intends to do in and through your life. Like it's not within their power to shut doors in your life, though they will try. And on the same token, whatever door Jesus shuts, it's pointless and futile to try to open. And so it's thus with this understanding about who Jesus is that he starts this letter to the awesome but not perfect church in Philadelphia, the home of Rocky Balboa and the most delicious cheesesteak sandwiches. I'm just kidding. Carmine's in Kong is the best cheesesteak sandwich. But anyway, we're talking about Philly in the Middle East here. That's actually present, uh, presently located in Turkey. Now, to their credit, the Philadelphian church receives nothing but commendations from Jesus. There's not a single reprimand for them compared to the other letters. This letter just has compliments and blessings for them. Now, that's not to say that they were a sinless or perfect church, for no church like that exists, like we said earlier. It's just that Jesus saw nothing wrong with them at the time that warranted him being him re rebuking them. Well, in verse 8, Jesus begins to explain what he thinks to them. He says he knows their deeds, which we can also read as saying he was deeply impressed with their good works, right? Because deeds speak, speak of good works. In fact, Jesus was so impressed with the Philadelphians that he says he was going to bless them with three things. First, he says, starting in verse 8, he says he's going to place before them an open opportunity that no one could or would be able to shut. Now, this was more than likely an opportunity or an open door of opportunity for unprecedented growth and outreach in their ministry. So he's about to grow their church. He's about to open a door for the gospel message to go forth through them. Though they had little strength, which is the exact word Jesus uses to describe them, Jesus was about to open the floodgates of heaven and shower them with ministry rewards. In fact, in verse 9, we get a glimpse of what's about to happen when Jesus says he's going to humble a group of people who had been making life miserable for them, a group of people called the synagogue of Satan. So the, listen to what happens when Jesus throws shade at your haters. These guys, these synagogue of Satan folks, they were basically pretentious Jews who falsely believed that they were doing God a favor by persecuting or making life difficult for Christians. Now, for our purpose, the synagogue of Satan refers to anyone in your life who makes life difficult for you in any way, shape, or form because you follow Jesus. So Jesus is saying to you and to them that he's actually going to bring them low in humiliation, so much so that they're going to be the ones coming to the Philadelphian Christians asking how they could come to know Jesus. Man, that, that's huge, right? When, when Jesus fights on your behalf, he does battle differently. He humbles your enemy so they come pleading for mercy, ultimately looking for hope in him. And Jesus was essentially saying to the Philadelphians, he's saying, listen, church, I know you have little strength and you've experienced little growth due to the persecution you're facing. But stand back and prepare yourselves because I'm about to bring more lost people to your doorsteps than you've ever seen. 
and I myself, the one who holds the key to salvation, will draw even the most antagonistic of Jews to your doorstep so that they will be the ones asking, what must we do to be saved? So Jesus is saying, listen, I got the keys. Get ready for this open door. Now, this beautiful encouragement from Jesus really begs the question for you and I, and it's this. What open doors has God placed around you presently? Like whether it's personal or gospel related. Now, from your vantage point, it may look, it may not look like an open door until you actually walk up to it and turn the doorknob to find out it's been unlocked just for you by Jesus. You know, in my faith, in my experience, I've observed that God oftentimes goes ahead of us to prepare hearts to be ready to receive a conversation that we spontaneously initiate with our friends about the gospel. That's an open door. We go into a conversation, have to start talking, and it seems things are working out. Well, God went ahead of you. Other times, God will go ahead of us and make people favorably predisposed towards us before we even show up. You know, I used to work here, or I worked here at Grace Church on the Mount through seminary as an intern ministering to young adults. I went to seminary in New York at Alliance Theological Seminary, Nyack. Now, at the time... Uh, Grace Church was in search of a senior pastor, and they actually found one in Armin Summer, who's presently still our amazing senior pastor. At the time of his hiring, however, I knew that budget cuts needed to be made, right? And since I was an intern, it seemed clear to me at the time that I'd be the first to go. So honestly, I began preparing my resume. Really mentally, I was getting ready to move on as I as I was praying through where I would land a new job. Well, unknown to me, however, was the fact that during that whole period while they were searching and really looking to hire Pastor Armin, he had actually been looking into the work I was doing here at Grace without my knowing and was actually highly interested in bringing me on board as a full-time pastor to oversee young adults at Grace. So in my first conversation with him, I remember how nervous I was. I called him on the phone. He was still in Colorado getting ready to move to Jersey. I prepared a speech and really a plea for him to allow me to continue here at Grace even at lesser hours. But of course, because God had already gone to me and provided an open door from the moment I picked up the phone and I was like, hey, Pastor Armin, my name is Shagun. I was, he didn't even let me finish. He was like, dude, I'm so excited to work with you. And I never even finished the sentence. This guy was so excited about having me on staff that he subtly but firmly insisted that I stay on board and continue with grace because I was part of the future that he envisioned for grace. And so, like I said, God, God oftentimes goes ahead of us to open doors. We may be sitting thinking, well, that opportunity will never open. And God's like, how do you know? Have you turned the doorknob yet? Because I've gone ahead of you. So I ask you that simple question again. As you look at your life and your surroundings and relationships around you and opportunities around you, where may God have opened some doors around you? Ponder that some more. Think about that some more when you have plenty of time. In the meantime, however, um, here's what else Jesus had in mind for the folks in Philly, starting in Revelation 3.10. Jesus says to them, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole earth to test the inhabitants of the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. For the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out from heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
So sometime after the death of Jesus Christ, let's talk a little bit about Philly here. Sometime after the death of Jesus Christ, a powerful earthquake hit the Philadelphian region and greatly shook up the city of Philadelphia. Now, though the emperor at the time assisted greatly in helping rebuild the city, its citizens actually lived in constant fear of experiencing another earthquake, so much so that the daily aftershocks forced many of its citizens to abandon the unstable city and live temporarily in the surrounding countryside. So this obviously would have forced many of its citizens into a lower standard of daily living, which means if you weren't wealthy in the first place, as was the case for many Christians, then life just got even more difficult. Now, consider the literal unstable world that these Christians were living in and put that in the context of Jesus promising to make them unshakable and unmovable pillars in the temple of God in the new Jerusalem when heaven meets earth. Think about what Jesus is saying there because it, it begs the question for you and I, this question really, and it's this, that w would you describe this season of your life as somewhat shaky? Perhaps you've faced one major trial or you're experiencing the aftershocks or of somebody else's trouble? Because if that describes you, listen, Jesus is saying here, just keep walking with me and just keep keeping your eyes on me. This is only a trial run for your reign in the city of God where I will soon bring you. In fact, the next promise, is, uh, next promise actually ties into this promise because Jesus speaks of personally writing new names of, uh, on each of us, three names in fact, the name of God, the name of the city of God, and a very personal name that he himself will give us. You know, when I first read that passage about him giving us new names, I remember thinking, wow, that's a lot of new names. Like, how am I supposed to remember all of them and not get confused about who I am? Like, is it even possible to have an identity crisis in heaven because I got so many names? Well, my best guess here is that all of these are really referring to the same thing. In other words, these are not so much three different names that we'll have to remember, but rather all these names we're being given in heaven are all picturing one truth, which is that you and I, because of who we are in Christ and because of our faithfulness to him, will have a true citizenship in the new heaven and new earth, a place that we can finally call home. This is great news, man. Uh, like It means that your name has been securely marked down and spelled out in the book of life in the registry of the new city of heaven. It means that God knows your name. Jesus knows your names. The Holy Spirit knows your name. Every high-ranking angel and ministering angel will know your name in heaven. All the Old Testament saints will know your name. All the believers in the church aid will know your name. And any other creatures we find in heaven will know your name. Why? Because you belong there, but more importantly, because Jesus himself has written your name in that book. And this is great news. So, as we wrap this up, let me leave you with this. As you ponder what doors of opportunity for the gospel God has placed around you, consider the fact that when God opens a door for you, it's not simply just about you getting a blessing, but it's about the registry of heaven being populated with more names of people that you will get to spend eternity with. And that, friends, is the book, uh, the letter to the folks in the Church of Philadelphia. God bless you. Have a great week. Thanks for listening.